Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Students of strategy often hear that old saw from Uncle Carl and Aunt Marie von Clausewitz. The nature of war is enduring, but the character of war changes with circumstances. As the world teeters on the brink of a new war in Ukraine, we are reminded anew of just how complex and bewildering the new character of war has become. As combatants vie for superiority, not only on the ground, at sea, or in the air, but also in cyberspace and in the minds of their respective populations, the conventional borders between war and peace have become blurred, and the strategic challenges have multiplied. These insights are central to the new book, Old and New Battle Spaces, Society, Military Power, and War, which describes how sociopolitical information warfare is leading to the weaponization of everything in society as every citizen becomes a combatant. Our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Jahara Frankie Matisek, one of the co-authors of this book, along with Burika Jayamaha. And he is joining us today on A Better Peace to discuss the book, his research, and its implications for future policy. Frankie Matisek is an active duty U.S. Air Force senior pilot, serving as an associate professor in the Department of Military and Strategic Studies and as the research director for the Strategy and Warfare Center at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He has over 3,600 hours of flight time with more than 1,300 combat hours, as well as a PhD in political science from Northwestern University, and has published over 60 articles in peer-reviewed journals and policy-relevant outlets on the topics of modern warfare, strategy, and security force assistance. And we are delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Frankie Matisek. Thanks a ton, Ron. It's great. I listen to you guys all the time. We always we always like uh, being able to connect with our fans, Frankie. <laughs> so what led what led you you and your colleague Budika to write this book? Well, uh, for, for, for those that have actually met me, uh, like they know, I, I like to work out a lot, and I get some of the coolest ideas when I'm working out. And thanks to having a smartphone and a really good a really good a friend like Budika J Malha, uh, I was uh, actually at the gym at Northwestern in. Uh, it was March or April of 2018, and I'm on the I'm on the bike, and I'm watching the news, and the news is starting to talk about sort of everything that's starting to leak out about how uh, the Russians had done a lot of election meddling uh, in 2016, and I was just kind of like sitting there getting really upset, at like this. I'm like, this doesn't seem fair that the Russians can do this, and they have like a paltry amount of money. They don't have a bunch of F-22s, F-35s, and, you know, they don't have as much, you know, military power as as we do. And as I was t- texting, like, my buddy, Budika Jemaha, uh, 
you know, I, it turned into a couple thousand words of text that I was like, holy crap. And this was over the course of an hour at the gym that I was like, holy crap, this could, this could be an article. So we actually ended up actually writing our first article about this in the war room uh, with you guys. Yeah. Uh, and then from that, when we wrote it, we were like, man, we have so much more left unsaid. So then we converted it into a long form article and we started adding other concepts that we, you know, when we really started to like, like to dig into this, like, okay, this isn't a novel new concept to like go after a population, but the way the, the ease in which it was done and the, the relatively low risk way and high payoff was something that, yeah, I thought just seemed really scary. So we turned it into an article for parameters mm-hmm. and within a couple of months of parameters, got a lot of feedback and, and basically have, uh, a, uh, a publisher reached out saying, love this. Could you turn this into a book? And so we eventually turned it into a book. Uh, and and we know it had an impact because uh, both those articles, uh, I actually had people that were working on the new uh, classified and unclassified joint doctrine uh, 3-14 for influence and joint operations on info ops reach out to me saying, can you help contribute to this? Because you, you basically started talking about stuff that we just didn't really consider when we were first starting to draft this up. So I got to be on the working team for that as well. See, and and I was also thinking that we've had you uh, on the program before to talk about uh, Homeland Defense and Homeland Security. One, among the many things I didn't mention in your bio was <laughs> that you're also involved in Homeland Defense. And I'm I'm curious how much uh, did you, had you were you already doing that stuff with Homeland Defense and Homeland Security before you worked on this project, or did that come in addition to working on this project? You know, I, I think it was kind of a, of a t- I mean, you, you know, talk about like, you know, you're doing one thing and then you turn out being better at something else. So my PhD dissertation had nothing to do with political and, and social information warfare. I was actually doing a dissertation on uh, building armies in African states. So it was basically about African politics mm-hmm. and, you know, how that works. And so had nothing to do with that. And this, you know, this was sort of like a outlet, like to vent, on, on different passions I, I didn't know I had. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting, but, it, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. If you read this book, you'll see that I don't come from a traditional background of writing and thinking about this topic, which I think actually brings in sort of a, a, a lot of like fresh insights uh, because I did not have an initial focus on this. So a lot of the way I frame a lot of problem sets is because I took a lot of classes on anthropology and sociology. Uh, and I do have, you know, my co-author has a really big appreciation for history, even though he's also a PhD in political science from Northwestern. So I think, you know, as, as, as you read the book, you'll, you'll, you'll notice a very, a very delicate balance between history and political science and sociology, anthropology that I think, uh, I, at least I like to hope that, you know, the average, average reader would be like, you know, I'm not happy about this book, but I'm also, I'm not, I'm not, fr- I'm not frustrated by it. Right. Either because it's appealing to sort of uh, a wide range of of literatures that you really need to investigate and explore when you're trying to talk about an idea as old as war. Right. Well, and and this gets to something that 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 attracted me about the book, and I think the uh, I think the audience would find interesting too. And that is that you you spend a lot of time talking about the uh, the importance of of history, but also there's a kind of interdisciplinary feel to the book in general. That you know, I'm a civilian who teaches in PME, a historian by training who does international politics, and so you know there were a lot of things that this this there were a lot of ways for me to get into this book. But when you're trying to reach a military audience, 
Um, you mentioned in, in your concluding, on the concluding pages of the book, you say, and this is a great quote, right? A serious consideration of strategy rooted in historical experience is even more important in our era in which considerable attention is focused on the emergence of the novel and the seemingly novel, close quote. One of the dangers that I see in the way that a lot of military people approach questions of the future battle space is they want to say, everything is new, therefore, why are you wasting my time talking about history? We should be talking about war fighting. We should be talking about, uh, about the, the immediate problems before us. So how do, you, uh, how do you square this circle when you say that it's precisely because so many things are new that we need to think about history, we need to think about uh, the other social sciences in order to understand the world? That is the, you know, the wicked problem question that is facing us in the military and policymakers and our elected leaders uh, is that, you know, we keep having these discussions about, well, the, you know, the third offset and the fourth offset, et cetera. This is this is going to ch change the warfare fundamentally like forever. And as you as you read our book, you, you know, especially the first couple of chapters, we basically laid on the line is that uh, people were thinking and saying the exact same things in the 1800s and the early 1900s about, you know, troop formations and logistics and new types of ammo. <laughs> yeah. And new weapon systems and platforms. And I think where we really sort of hammer home the point is when you have these new technologies, it's not like you're the only country that's going to have it for the rest of your, you know, for the rest of your life. It, it doesn't work like that. You like to think that in the moment, you know, like whoever gets quantum, uh, whoever gets the quantum computing first, whoever masters artificial intelligence, who gets the blockchain right, you know, all these, you know, these things that you say are going to fundamentally change the game. And that's where, when we really were looking at, you know, previous times that people thought we were on the precipice of something like this. That's where we where we came up with the grins the model. So mm -hmm. uh, the grins is a geopolitical. Uh, so the first is G. So geopolitical context. R is for regime type. I is for ideas. N is for nature of military organization. And S is for scientific knowledge. Uh, and when we started using that as a lens to look at countries, you know, that have you know gone to war and had these new technologies. It, if you look at the blend of who gets it right and who eventually wins, it's because of the way they mastered each part of the G, the R, the I, the N, and the S. Uh, and so when we are worried about what China's doing, about Russia's doing, you know, it, in one way, the U.S., I think, is still way in the head better because of like the way we, you know, we handle ideas in the military and in a, a free and open society, a liberal democracy, things like that. However, that does not guarantee you victory either. And we know this because of the way China and Russia have done a lot to sort of learn from past mistakes, uh, the, the way they have also studied history and the way they've been adopting and adapting to new weapon systems, platforms and technologies uh, that, you know, we're, we're actually starting to see how this plays out a little bit. And the fact that, you know, if I'm the Chinese or Russians, you look at what the Americans did to Saddam in, in 1991 and again in 2003, and even to a certain extent what we did to the, to, to the Taliban in Afghanistan initially. And that's their adaptation. Like the regime basically says, from a geopolitical perspective, this is untenable for us if we want to be able to keep achieving our gains and we still want to have tight control over our own society. So what are some 
asymmetric ways that we can take advantage of this and exploit the West and what it's good at. And, and that's kind of what this book I think is partly about is, is my fear of we keep talking about this big conventional battle, you know, large scale combat operations, like these big military campaigns that we keep training and building for against the Chinese and Russians. And yet, if you look at the Chinese and Russians, that's the last thing they want to do with us. Right. Right. I mean, <laughs> because, and, and that, because they're smart. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I think is the funny thing, right? Is this, this precise, you know, historians will, will, and they're already saying this, but they'll continue to say it. I would say that, that the, uh, the, the swift victory of the U S military and its allies in the first Gulf war basically guaranteed that nobody wants to fight a tank war with the United States anytime soon. And so anybody who is going to look to compete is going to look for other ways to compete. And that we need to be aware of that too, right? So sometimes showing that you're really good at something is a guarantee that nobody's going to challenge you at it. Yeah. And and you can see that over the last 10 years, lots of reports are starting to come out about uh, the Chinese and Russians did truly do like a, a deep look at themselves and basically said, we have to r- radically like reform our military <laughs> systems because we are not competitive mm-hmm. uh, against the Americans, uh, let alone in our in our region if we don't make major reforms and advancements. And you can definitely see the, the way their behavior has changed and like the, like the sort of gains both countries are making because they've made these radical changes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think is important about this is, you know, new systems and new weapons and advances, you know, that's nothing new. It's th- th- what's important though, is who adapts and implements these things. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, you know, is my greatest fear for the U S military is that we keep saying we're done doing coin CT, proxy wars, military systems, things like that. We're going to, again, just go towards combat arms maneuver, large-scale combat operations, et cetera, for that big conventional fight with China and Russia, when in reality, no one wants to train or fight that way against us. People mm-hmm. will do their initial small forces to say this for deterrence. But other than that, it's about denying the Americans the ability to exercise uh, military power that way. See, and that's where the the idea that that developing strategy is an iterative process that it's not like that there's a finish line someplace and once you cross it you say okay now i win all conflicts right as you do something your potential adversaries adapt and then you have to recognize and adapt to what your adversaries do um and i'm you you've said this but i want to dig a little deeper do you think that the american military has a problem recognizing that our adversaries um do things that we should adapt to uh, in other words, do you think do you think that we have a hard time in the American military realizing that you know it's not just a matter of everybody else adapting to us? That's why, like when we are talking about like irregular warfare, the fact that the annex was actually like like the unclassified annex was actually like released. That wasn't that wasn't on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why it was actually actually released is because of the irregular the warfare initiative podcast had actually got people inside the Pentagon talking about like, yeah, maybe we should actually actually release this, you know, an unclassified v- version because we do need to take this a little bit more as, as seriously because our natural default setting is, again, we want to have tanks here, we want to have airplanes here, aircraft carriers there, and we're going impose to our, impose our will against an, against an adversary uh, without taking into account that... Um, the adversary again has a vote. I know it sounds really cliche, but they do have a vote. Uh, and the fact that the Russians and Chinese invested heavily in anti-access uh, and denial type weapons, weapon systems, so that when we start looking about like if we really wanted to 
act and operate the way we did in Afghanistan, Iraq the last two decades. It's just not going to happen. Right. I mean, and, and you know, you you're a, you're an Air Force officer. Um, and uh, you, you teach at the Air Force Academy, um, that in some ways, right, uh, uh, American or U.S. air dominance um, has created an, uh, a situation where in most recent conflicts, the United States has been able to operate in very permissive, let's say, permissive environments. Um, and uh, does that make does that make one lazy when one just assumes that you, you can fly anything anywhere at any time because nobody's going to stop you? Oh, yeah. I mean... I mean, I look back to my, you know, to my days of actually flying back in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I remember like the first, like my first combat mission was in May of 2008, landing into, into Baghdad and a lot, you know, lots of anxiety and trepidation because you'd heard, of, you know, of a few aircraft that had been hit. Uh, but then like after doing it a few more times, I started realizing like, oh, this has been routinized and bureaucratized because if you're going to get hit, it's a golden BB shot. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a big cargo plane. So even if we get hit, because if you I would get hit, you'd be like, all right, just land. You're fine. Mm -hmm. like, you're not going to just explode. Uh, and and even when I was in Afghanistan in 2020, flying the E-11 Bacon, I mean, the, the, the lackadaisical attitude that we all had uh, was just sort of like, if it happens, it's a golden BB. But other than that, there's no real reason to worry or train to prepare for anything because it was just sort of like, yeah, if they're going to hit you, it's going to be an AK round or just a dumb luck shot and yeah we can't do anything about it anyway so right i think about this uh, this is something we could we could talk about for a long time but we will uh we we, we won't we will try to move on but the you know our reliance on drones for example and the assumption that the drones can hang around over a target you can do that when your adversary doesn't have a2 ad capabilities when your adversary does suddenly drones seem a lot less valuable as uh as weapons, I would say. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and and that was even something that I thought was actually really, really fascinating when I was in Afghanistan in 2020 was that uh, there were certain military units that wouldn't go outside the wire if they did not have a dedicated ISR platform, aka a drone, to provide them overhead on their mission. And and that's something that also has me, you know, again, we could talk for hours about American military risk aversion, right? After what happened you know, when a four green berets got killed in Niger, like a few years ago, and, you know, other little minor incidences that cause us to be like, whoa, 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 we're not in the, in the business of war. And yet, no, we are, we just, right. we've just become so risk adverse to it now. It's yeah. The, the idea that war is something that you bring to somebody else, but that they're not allowed to turn back on you. That's, that is a, uh, let's say that's, that's not a, that, that's not a very sensible way to go about uh, dealing with such Challenges. But it's been really, but I mean, when you think about it, it's really been codified into American and, and NATO doctrine in general since the early 1980s when we finally decided like, hey, we're not going to try and compete with the Russians pound for pound with, you know, as many people and weapon systems as them. We're just going to invest in higher end technologies, more precision, more standoff range, you know, invest in our people, but we can't have as, you know, we can't have as many people or platform systems because everything's super high quality. Right. Well, and, and I want to get back to the people question, because this is something else that I found very interesting about uh, what you write about in the book. You talk about the importance of education for the warfighters, for, for soldiers. And you mentioned how for officers, uh, we have war colleges and we have plenty of opportunities, fellowships for officers to learn, but that the tip of the spear remains your recruit somewhere in the age, age range of 18 to 25. And how should we be as a society trying to encourage a higher education level among our recruits, uh, especially in a, in a free society with an all volunteer force? And how can you guarantee, how can you encourage 
uh, a let's say a, a, a higher intellectual quality among the force, if you think that that's necessary in order to make the force more effective in the future. So this is something that I've been trying to articulate in a way that I hope doesn't come off as glib, but uh, I don't like the fact that the U.S. military and most Western militaries are obsessed with this industrial age mindset and model for the way we train, equip, and fight. Mm -hmm. uh, because to me, it makes me think that, again, that we're looking for warriors, and I'm using air quotes there, that are just physical beasts that will go out on, in, into combat, hundreds of thousands of Americans doing the World War II and World War I style, the warfare. And I just, I, I just, I find that a very antiquated way of thinking about modern warfare. Does it happen in isolated, isolated cases? Yeah. I mean, you look at Eastern Ukraine and like the trench warfare and tank battles you haven't seen since World War I, World War II. But again, you know, if we move away from an industrial age mindset of war fighting to an information age mindset of war fighting, the having those physical types of warriors becomes less important. Do you need those niche units? Yeah, of course you do, but it doesn't need to be the entire force. It's, I mean, even right now, like when you look at, at our operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, only a small percentage of people actually went outside the wire. Even me taking off and landing in Kandahar in an airplane. Yeah, I was technically going outside the wire, but like I didn't need to be actually physically actually fit to fly that airplane. And when I start looking at all these new weapon systems and platforms, uh, it goes back to the education thing of uh, I, I want the most mentally fit, capable people actually being our war fighters because most of our systems are super complicated mm -hmm. and, and require you to have to think in ways that, you know, you're having to outsmart your adversary, you know, throughout the usual OODA loop thing right there uh, that we all have to talk about at some point. But um, that's right. I, I made sure to check that off the box. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise we get we get angry letters from Colorado <laughs> Springs if we don't mention the OODA loop. <laughs> yeah. And I just, you know, I, I'm always looking at, 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 at like what the joint force can do better. And if you tell me if the joint force would get better with, you know, a, a person that can do 100 pushups versus a person that can do deep data analysis, I'll tell you that that will win a war more with a person that can do deep data analysis that, that can do 100 pushups and, and, and 20 pull-ups. That, hands down, that's, that's how warfare is now. Hmm. Well, and, and I guess this gets to the, the, the bigger question hovering over the books. You talk about old and new battle spaces. You talk about the role of the homeland. You talk about the role of, the, um, of opinion and cyber. Um, what kinds of reforms uh, you know, either uh, is the way that you list them, material, doctrinal, or personnel reforms or innovations, do you think uh, we should be considering as a force to be ready for these new battle spaces? I mean, uh, in the military alone right now, like the thing that it is concerning me is that uh, we still treat this as a PowerPoint solution. So when they talk about, you know, over the last year or two, they talked about, okay, we got to root out extremism, we have to, you know, teach people to be resilient against bad things in social media and and not sharing memes. The solution, as far as I can tell, has been throw a, a mandatory PowerPoint, a CPT training at the average person in the DoD and be like, problem solved, boys and girls, but problem solved. <laughs> Move on to other things because we told Congress we dealt with it, and there's our PowerPoint proving that we solved it. And see, everyone, everyone's doing it now. You know, we've made them do the extra extra training on not sharing uh, sensitive information. See, problem solved. They did the PowerPoint. See, right. 
Uh, and I, 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 I have just grown so unhappy with that. I even, I, I, I think I even actually got pulled in to help actually build one of those CBTs. And part of me was just like, cool, as, as much effort, energy I put into helping you build this thing, it's going to be a click-a-thon, get through it because I have, I have other things I have to get to. <laughs> if it was actually taken truly seriously, like it would be actual units, you know, spending an hour a month together talking about how do we deal with extremism? You know, how do you deal with, you know, that, that crazy uncle or aunt at the dinner that starts talking about, you know, memes and things that they that they learn from the Russians or Chinese, but they don't believe it because they think it's real and Pizzagate and QAnon and all that stuff. Uh, you know, th this is the basics of resilience. Mm -hmm. And th that is always the, the tough thing about, you know, about America and other sort of, you know, the Western countries is we, you know, the, like we operate under the, like this bureaucratic rational legal model system, which says we can solve this again by throwing a PowerPoint or some basic training at it. And then we check that box and move on to something else. But in reality, you, you don't, you don't address, you know, uh, a cyber and dig cyber and digital literacy, uh, through PowerPoint, it has to be person to person in human contact, mm -hmm. mentoring, molding, coaching, influencing people, uh, as opposed to just, you know, to adding it to like the, the 20, annual CBTs we have to do. Right. Well, it, it's this This relates back to what you were talking about earlier, about that this is an iterative process, right? That, that it's not just a one and done, but if you want to develop good strategy, if you want to understand the challenges, you have to be, you have to be able to study the uh, adversary, but you also have to be able to study yourself and you need to be able to study the force and people need to be able to talk about these things. So what do you think of the uh, I think we've already hit on this a little bit, but I want to make it a little more clear. What are the barriers do you see to, um, or, or the, let's say maybe not barriers, let's say the the uh, obstacles uh, think that perhaps can be overcome to getting to the better kind of force that you think we need for this new battle space? I mean, uh, the biggest barriers and obstacles, you know, is something that I wish we could actually solve on the military end. Uh, unfortunately, I hate, I hate having to hide behind the military industrial, the complex answer and Congress. But, you know, I've been doing tons of interviews and, uh, you know, with generals and, and other sort of high level folks for, for other research projects I'm doing. And nine times out of 10, a conversation will always devolve into we need these authorities and, and mandates and legislation from Congress allowing us to kind of break out of this sort of industrial age military. There's a lot of, you know, also comes with, even with, with like promotions and things like that. There's a lot of these sort of, you know, uh, obstacles, legacy ideas, institutions and cultures that kind of keep the U.S. military trapped. And, you know, as as a historian, Ron, I, I assume you are pretty well read in sort of what does it take nine times out of 10 for a military organization culture to finally adopt it's they get shocked and destroyed in a major Same. military. It takes a, it takes the Battle of Jena to convince the Prussian <laughs> the Prussian army that it needs to change. Right, this is often the case. For, for our listeners, the Battle of Jena shots <laughs> that one person holding out for that. <laughs> no, but but I guess that's the that's the challenge, right? Is we would like to be prepared for these things without have without having to lose, uh, without having to suffer a catastrophic defeat before we can before we can change and develop. Exactly. And the only way we're going to be able to get that is, you know, uh, and I've talked to a few people uh, on the Air Force uh, side who work for like the Commander's Action Group, how they're, they're trying really hard to push Congress to like, hey, give us more authorities, give us more uh, 
flexibility to kind of have that information age military. So it's institutions, it's people, culture can adapt more rapidly because that's, that's my greatest fear is that we are, you know, and that's why we actually use the term new battle space because the war is fundamentally like the, the character is, you know, it's changing a little bit, but the nature is still there, but it's what can we do to out adapt, out evolve, out innovate our adversaries. And right now, you know, we're doing it with a hand behind our back on most, on most fronts because Congress has certain the rules and restrictions in place that prevent us from doing certain things and promotions, retention, things like that. And, you know, I'd like to hope in the next five to 10 years, we actually finally get a, a long-term budget for once. That'd be really nice uh, as opposed to sort of half-assing our way through each year, each, each fiscal year type of cycle, not being able to actually fund things appropriately mm-hmm. uh, and actually be able to make some bigger personnel decisions like i'd have no problem if there was a 30 year old two-star general in my unit if the person was that awesome mm-hmm. and that intelligent and that smart uh, and i and i think that's a problem for some senior leaders is that they think you have to have gone through that long matriculation process and that you can't just be a plug and play like that and yet we kind of know that actually can actually work right and it, so it's all about being open to new ideas being open to the possibility of of people working. I mean, military organizations are hierarchical. Military organizations are built around uniformity, literally and figuratively. So you can see <laughs> where, you know, this is kind of the way it's got to be, but in a, in a more, uh, in a more challenging, in a fast moving uh, battle space, uh, institutions need to figure out how to move fast too. Um, well, Frankie, we could, we could go on and on. You believe we've already talked almost half an hour about this, and I think we're just about <laughs> out of time for today. But I hope that uh, anybody out there who's listening to this conversation, I hope any of you are, that you will uh, take a look at old and new battle spaces. Um, and Frankie, I hope that we can get you back on here again in the future to talk about uh, further developments of your research and how you talk about these things. But we really appreciate you being here on A Better Peace today. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Ron. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Frankie. And thanks to all of you for listening in. We really do appreciate you being here. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs. Send us suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to A Better Peace if you have not already. And if you have not already subscribed to A Better Peace, I need you to take a good long look at yourself in the mirror and think about why you haven't done so. So you should subscribe. And then after you've subscribed, you can rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that other people can find out about us too. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations like this one. Um, This one is over, but we look forward to welcoming you to the next conversation. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.